0: We turn in sacred Scripture to Mark chapter 9. We read this in connection with Lord's Day 4 of the Catechism, and we read this because our focus this morning is going to be on the reality of hell and what hell is. And Jesus makes multiple references to hell in this passage. Mark 9, we begin at verse 33, verse 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, perhaps that's Peter's house, being in the house, he asked them, what was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name, receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And he followeth not us. And we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, It is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another." So far, we read God's holy and infallible Word. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture and on the basis of many passages that we have the instruction of Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism, found on page 4 in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 4. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law... That which he cannot perform. Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it. But man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means. And the point here in Lord's Day 4 is, is there no way of escape? Is there no excuse we can give? Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means, but is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins, and will punish them in His just judgment, temporally and eternally, as He hath declared, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law, to do them. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, His justice requires that sin, which is committed against the Most High Majesty of God, be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul." Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are still in the first section of the Heidelberg Catechism, we are still looking at how great our sin and misery is. And so far in our study, we have looked at the truth of total depravity. From Lord's Days 2 and 3, we saw that man by nature is totally depraved. He is prone by nature to hate God and his neighbor. He is entirely incapable of keeping God's law at all. And he is entirely incapable even of wanting to keep God's law. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. And from Lord's Day 3, we also saw that man himself is responsible for this total depravity. God did not originally create man totally depraved, but man brought this total corruption of his human nature upon himself through the rebellion and fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. And such is this total depravity that, except God perform that wonder work of regeneration, there is absolutely no way of escaping this misery Of ourselves, we lie in the midst of sin and death. Well, now here with Lord's Day 4 this morning, the Catechism adds something more to our misery. Lord's Day 4 adds something because here in Lord's Day 4, the Catechism says, Not only are you totally depraved by nature, but you also stand exposed to the eternal wrath of God. Here in Lord's Day 4, the Catechism is saying, not only are you entirely corrupt in your sinful nature, and that itself is misery, being in bondage to sin, but you are also guilty. That's something more. You are guilty. You have sinned against God's law, and the punishment for sin is the wrath of God. Because you have committed sin, you are the object of God's wrath. You've robbed God of His glory. You have rebelled against Him. And God is a righteous God who does not, who cannot wink at sin. He is holy and He will execute the proper punishment for the transgressions of His commandments. Now obviously that adds something more to our misery. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. As an aside, let me point something out. I like doing this with the Catechism students. This is something that we emphasize in Catechism. I think they're coming to really understand it. Jesus delivers us from our sin and misery through a two-step process. And the Catechism students know this well. Jesus takes away the guilt of our sin. Let me use this hand. He takes away the guilt of our sin by shedding His blood for us on the cross as a sacrifice. And Jesus also takes away the corruption or the pollution of our sin by regenerating us and sanctifying us by the work of His Holy Spirit. And this is a lifelong activity that Jesus carries out. So Jesus needs to deliver us both from the guilt of our sin and the corruption of our sin, the pollution of our sin, our sinful natures. Here with Lord's Day 4, still in the first section of the Catechism, we begin to see why those two steps are necessary. We've already seen our corruption, our total depravity, how we are polluted through and through in our sinful nature, and how we need to be delivered from our corruption through regeneration. But now here in Lord's Day 4, we also need to see our guilt and how we need to be delivered from our guilt through Jesus Christ also bearing our punishment for us on the cross. So the reason there are two steps to Jesus' work of delivering us from our sin and misery is because there's really two parts to our misery. First, our totally depraved, sinful nature. And second, our guiltiness and the punishment we deserve for our sins. Now when Jesus delivers us from our misery, He first takes away the guilt of our sin. He dies for our sins. He he bears the punishment on the cross. And then after He takes away the guilt of our sin, He goes to work sanctifying us, delivering us from our total depravity, from our bondage to sin. Well, this morning as we treat this material, we're going to concentrate on the topic of hell. Hell as God's punishment against sin. This is our misery. Belonging to ourselves, we stand exposed to the eternal fires of hell. And we're going to look at this topic of hell in detail this morning so that we might see more clearly why our comfort is that we belong to Jesus Christ. We take as our theme, more misery, the everlasting punishment of hell. And we look at three things. First, we look at the fearful reality, what hell is. Second, we look at the divine justice, why God is just in in having hell. And then third, the only hope. Although Lord's Day 4 does not explicitly use the word hell, Lord's Day 4 does make clear reference to the idea of hell. And so we're asking this morning, what is hell? Well, hell can be described in a few different ways. Hell is the place of eternal punishment. Hell is the place of eternal punishment where everlasting suffering will be experienced in body and soul. And hell is the place of eternal punishment, where everlasting suffering will will be experienced in body and soul as God's just vengeance upon the sin that has been committed against His Most High Majesty. Hell is the place where the wicked reprobate bear the full brunt of God's curse upon them. To be sure, already now, the wicked reprobate are under the full curse of God, but hell is the place where God's curse is spoken upon the wicked in all its power and all its fury. In the Bible, there are especially three words that are used for hell, and those three words are used to describe two outstanding pictures of what hell is like. First, there are the words Sheol and Hades. Now, those two words, Sheol and Hades, are words that can also refer to the grave and to physical death, but they can also refer to hell. And so sometimes when you come across these two words in the Bible, you have to determine whether that word is referring to the grave and physical death or whether it's referring to the place of hell. But these two words, Sheol and Hades, are referring to hell. When they refer to hell, they especially picture hell as a grave. Hell is a grave. Hell is a deep abyss where there is no light, there are no windows, but there is only outer darkness. According to these words, according to this picture, hell is a terrifying "...claustrophobic, lonely place. There is no friendship in hell, but only torment, weeping, and gnashing of teeth." According to these words, Sheol and Hades, hell is a a shameful place where death, think of death as a person, death having defeated a man, strips him bare and consumes him. Hell is a bottomless pit." Now, these two words, Hades and Sheol, especially refer to hell as the place where the souls of the wicked go after they die. It's the place where their souls, souls go to be punished immediately after death and before Christ's second coming, the intermediate state of the wicked. So, these words, hell and Sheol, or, or uh, Hades and Sheol, especially picture hell as a grave. And second, there's the third word, Gehenna. The word Gehenna is the word that's most commonly used by Jesus. It's the word that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 9. The word Gehenna is the word that more properly refers to the place where both the soul and the body of the wicked go after the final judgment, after Jesus comes again. In the book of Revelation, this place, Gehenna, is actually the place where death and Hades are thrown into. Death and hell, Hades, are thrown into Gehenna, the final place of the wicked. Gehenna is the lake of fire. The grave and the abyss are thrown into the lake of fire. Now this word Gehenna is a word that literally means the valley of Henna. And the valley of Henna was the deep valley outside of Jerusalem on the southern side of the city. If you look at a map of Jerusalem, you see that deep valley on the south side of the city. That valley was the place where King Ahaz and King Manasseh offered their children to Molech in the fire. This valley was a place where gross wickedness and idolatry had taken place. In order to, for those things... To, to stop happening, godly King Josiah, when he worked his reformation work, he turned the Valley of Henna into the city's garbage dump. So that now instead of a place at the south end of the city where all kinds of wicked idolatry took place, the Valley of Henna was now the place where all the garbage, the human excrement, and animal carcasses, and the corpses of criminals were discarded. And because this is where everyone brought their garbage to be burned, there was always a fire burning in this garbage dump. And because of all the garbage and the excrement and rotting flesh, there were also worms there. This was a place that was characterized by worms and by fire. And that became a picture of of hell. That's why in the passage we read this morning in Mark 9, Jesus refers three times to hell as a place where the fire shall never be quenched, and the place where the worm dieth not. That's what hell is. Hell is compared to a garbage dump where there is a fire that never goes out and where the worm never dies, because your body continues to exist. And the worms keep eating your body, and the fires keep tormenting your body. And what that language emphasizes is that hell is for eternity. That language implies that the wicked are constantly being burned up, constantly being eaten by worms in the garbage dump, but they never come to the end of it. The fire keeps on burning, the worms keep on eating, because the wicked in hell keep on existing forever. That's the word Gehenna. From other passages of Scripture, we learn more about hell. In Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus describes hell as the place prepared for the devil and his angels. In Luke 16, verses 22 and 23, Jesus describes hell as a place where the sinner is being tormented by fire. In Jude 13, we read that those who go to hell experience the black of darkness. That's very striking language. Hell is described as the blackness of darkness. In Revelation 20 verse 6, hell is described as the second death. And in verse 14, as we already implied, as we already made reference, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire That's the second death. Hell is the place where God rejects the ungodly in His wrath. Hell is the place where the sinner is left alone with his sins. And hell is the place where God pours out His wrath upon the sinner for all his sin. Now in hell, there will be degrees of punishment. That's clear when Jesus says that it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment, than for Bethsaida and Capernaum. There are different degrees in hell, just as there are different degrees in heaven. Every person, the Bible says, shall be rewarded according to his works. According to the measure of his works, so his reward shall be But whatever the degrees of hell are, hell is the place where there is absolutely no enjoyment of God, but there is only one wave after another of God's wrath rolling over the sinner. Hell is the place where all peace is removed, all joy is removed, and there is only unmixed sorrow. And there is no reprieve, no let up, no relief. To experience hell is to be filled with utter hopelessness. And despair and darkness as the fire of God's wrath fills both the body and the soul. And punishes both the body and the soul for the sins that have been committed in that body and that soul. That's hell. Now to really impress upon us this reality of hell, let me put this question before you. In hell, will the wicked be sinning against God? It's an interesting question, if we can put it that way. In hell, will the wicked still be rebelling against God, shaking their fist against God, speaking wickedly of God for all eternity? What do you think? Well, there's a difference of opinion here, but let me try to show you the absolute misery and horror of hell by giving you this answer. No. That's the answer I come to at least. In hell, the wicked will not be rebelling against God. The wicked will not be shaking their fists against God because the wicked won't have time for that. The wicked won't be able to do that because the wicked will be so oppressed by the wrath of God, so consumed by the wrath of God, so destroyed by the wrath of God in hell that they will not be able to exert any energy in rebellion against God. To put it another way, we can say this the wicked will not enjoy the wicked, hellish satisfaction of committing sin against God. Because that's not what hell is like. Hell is punishment. What is true is this in hell, the wicked will be confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. God hath also also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In hell the, the idolatry of the wicked will be put away. The wicked will know that God is God alone. They will know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior. All their attacks against Jesus will cease. Their mouths will be shut in their hearts. They will be unable to avoid confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in the perfect knowledge of who Jesus is as Lord, they will be overcome with unutterable fear, spiritual anguish, Dread, horror, terror, distress, pain, and utter hopelessness. So when I say that the wicked will not be sinning in hell, what I don't mean to say is that the wicked will be given a better human nature or that they will be able to do the good. That's not the case at all. But what I mean to emphasize is this. In hell, the wicked will be destroyed. They will be destroyed, first of all, so that they will be brought utterly low, Overcome with shame and guilt and sorrow. Fully conscious of who Jesus is as Lord. And they will see just how truly offensive their sins were. They will see it. And then in hell, they will be racked with a guilty conscience. They will be forever condemning themselves for the works they committed in the flesh. They will decry the utter sinfulness and foolishness of how they lived while they lived on the earth. And they will be wholly consumed in the activity of bearing the wrath of God against them. In an article in the Standard Bear, Reverend Alpoff puts it this way. The wicked in hell will not receive a better human nature, but their sinful nature will be, quote, Dried up, so to speak. End quote. And the idea then is this. In hell, there will be no idolatry, no adultery, no blaspheming God's name, no lusting after the flesh. There will be nothing of that sort. Nothing in the way of positive, active sinning, if we may use that language. In hell, the wicked will be passive. Wholly consumed with bearing the wrath of God. The wrath of God will so consume their whole being, the fires of God's wrath will burn so intensely in their body and their soul, in their mind and in their heart, that there will be nothing left for them to be able to do in the way of active sinning. They will be so overwhelmed with God's wrath that there won't be any positive activity for them to do in their sinful natures. In hell, the reprobate will be just as completely devoted to God as the redeemed are devoted to God in heaven. But they won't be devoted in the way of enjoying God, but they will be devoted to God in the way of bearing His wrath and even speaking of His excellency in punishing them. And all of that will be to the honor of God's name. I think that's an important point to make as well. In the age to come, hell will not be some sort of blot, some regret, some stain in the age to come. No, but hell will be a place where God's name is also being perfectly magnified as the wicked themselves confess God's justice in pouring out His wrath upon them. God does everything perfectly. There is no stain, there is no blemish when God brings everything to its perfect realization. That's the reality Of hell. In hell, the wicked will only be able to identify themselves the way God identifies them. They are the idolater. They are the Sabbath desecrator. They are the thief. They are the murderer. In hell, there will be no escaping the truth. There will be no searing of their consciences anymore. There will be no deception or vanity. And they will be wracked with the extreme anguish that comes from knowing that this is how the perfect, all-glorious God of heaven and earth views them. Maybe if I can put it this way, beloved, when you sin against God and God causes you to feel His anger, that's the most horrible feeling in the world, isn't it? Remember we brought that up last week Sunday? We said, think of Jonah. You know that experience, Your conscience is pricked. You suddenly feel scared and hopeless because you know who God is. You've seen His glory and His holiness. And unless you know you have Jesus as your Savior and you hide yourself in Him, you feel frightened at the terrible wrath of God. That's what the wicked will experience in hell. In every moment, world without end, with the knowledge that there is no hope of deliverance because the day of salvation has passed. Ultimately, we should understand that just as no one can imagine the glories of heaven reserved for God's people in Christ, just so no one can imagine the horrors of hell reserved for the wicked who do not repent and call on the name of Jesus. And if I may add something more, let me say this. The wicked experience this kind of misery already now, in part. Already now, God's wrath is falling upon them. Already now, God's curse is upon the wicked. He is bringing His judgment upon them. Oh yes, we know the wicked are still able to shake their fist against God in hell. God will bring that to an end. But even though now the wicked can still shake their fist against God, God is still bringing His wrath upon them. He does it, first of all, by giving them no peace on this earth. There is no peace, saith the Lord, to the wicked. And they experience that every day. They don't have any peace with God. They don't know the joy of God's smile. They do not have clean consciences. They are bitter. They are angry. They are resentful and selfish and proud people. This is why they sear their consciences with a hot iron. This is why our culture is doing what it's doing. They try to drown out God's voice in their lives. And then they devote themselves more and more to sin. That's why they run in sin to try to block out God from their lives. Running away from the reality of who God is. And again, in the end, in hell, God will bring all of this to an end. Their consciences will no longer be seared but they will be able to hear and understand and experience with full clarity the reality of God's wrath against them for their sin. But already now, that's the point. God is judging the wicked. And most Most often, God is judging them by giving them over to their sins. And God judges the wicked in this life in many ways. All the sorrows of this life are expressions of God's wrath against the wicked. For us as God's children, these sorrows are not expressions of wrath or punishment, but they are chastisement meant to refine us and bless us. But for the wicked, they are expressions of God's wrath meant to punish and destroy And then God also judges the wicked by giving them over to their sins. That their cup of iniquity might be filled. So that the punishment reserved for them in hell will come to pass. And we need to understand, if this is how the wicked are filling up their cup of iniquity, by God giving them over to their sin... Well, then how can we possibly speak of these kinds of things as part of God's common grace? Right? I think that becomes very clear. God gives the wicked good things. He certainly does. He gives them marvelous things. But with those marvelous things, the wicked only increase their sin and they reserve to themselves more judgment in hell, a greater degree of God's wrath. And God knows these things. God even gives the wicked these things in order to set their feet on slippery places so that their cup of iniquity is filled. The way it is, is like this. In Adam, the whole human race plunged itself under the curse of God. And unless that curse of God is taken away from us through the blood of one who bears that curse for us, that curse always remains on us. For the wicked then, how can we speak about these things, these earthly material gifts as part of God's grace to the wicked? It's not grace at all. Let us understand, for those who are outside of Jesus Christ, for those whose end is hell, there is no grace from God. Indeed, for the wicked unbeliever, the sorrows and pains of this life are only a foretaste of the greater agonies of hell that are yet to come. And let me remind you, beloved, this is our misery. This is our state. This is our condition when left to ourselves. This is where we are in the catechism. This is the reality of where we all stand with God when left to ourselves. His curse is upon us. His wrath is upon us. And in his just judgment, he punishes our sin both temporally and eternally. This is true for all of us if we are left to ourselves, if we don't find our refuge in Jesus Christ. This is why we partly spent so much time on exploring what hell is because we need to see the misery of our sin and the judgment, the punishment that is due unto us for our sin. Well, all of this is quite something, isn't it? And all of this leads us to consider the question, is God right in doing this? Is God just in all that He does? What about divine justice? Well, some would dare to say, no, God would not be just in doing something like this, all of what I've just described. For first of all, they would say, The punishment hardly fits the crime. Why should a temporal sin, a sin committed in time, of such short duration be punished with such extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul? Doesn't the Bible say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Why then should my sin of such short duration be punished with such extreme punishment of body and soul? And then second of all, someone might also say, well, what about God's love and His mercy? Isn't He also merciful? And doesn't an eternity of hell come off as needlessly cruel on the part of God? In fact, someone might say, doesn't the Bible, doesn't the Bible teach us that God doesn't repay us according to our iniquities? Isn't God slow to anger and abundant in love? And These are the things you really hear. On the face of all kinds of objections, what we need to confess is that God is entirely right and just and good and praiseworthy in the punishment He carries out on the wicked. The problem is not with God. It never is. The problem is with us. And the problem is this. We fail to see just how offensive our sin is. No one here this morning appreciates just how offensive his sin is or her sin is. And the Heidelberg Catechism gets right to the heart of the matter when it says, sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God must also be punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. The problem is this. We don't appreciate just how deeply sinful The character of sin is. Sin is not just a weakness, a lapse, a a mistake, a temporary imperfection. Rather, in its origin and in its essence, sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion. It is hostility against God. Sin itself is an attack on the justice and purity of God. And the love of God. And the very existence of God. Really, no one can talk. No one can start talking about the justice of God with regard to hell unless he first starts talking about the injustice of his own sin against God. That's where the conversation needs to start. In addition, we're talking here about sin, about hostility and rebellion committed against the Most High Majesty of God, who is of infinite perfections. Whose, whose perfections are of an infinite magnitude. The one who is absolutely entitled to all our love, all our worship, all our obedience. He is infinitely worthy of all our obedience and dedication. And so when we sin, we're, we're sinning of an infinite magnitude because the one against whom we sin is infinite in His glory. And in addition to that, we must remember that God originally created man good and after his own image. God made us perfect, capable of keeping all the requirements of his law. We have no excuse and the demands of the law remain upon us. Even though we've made ourselves unable to keep those demands, we still are obligated to keep them. That's entirely just of God to do. And in addition to that, why God is just in dealing this way, we must also remember this, that God does not somehow take joy merely in the act of sending people to hell. We need to be careful here, but the point is this, the biblical doctrine of hell has nothing to do with a divine cruelty or a vindictiveness that takes delight in the condemnation of the wicked in the same way that God delights to show mercy. And what I mean is this. The reason God saves some people is because God is a God of mercy. He delights in mercy. But the reason God sends other people to hell is not because God is also a God of cruelty who delights in cruelty. No. The fact is, the pain God inflicts in hell is not, in and of itself, an object of pleasure for Him. But it is a means whereby He glorifies His virtues, and that's what He takes pleasure in. The reality is this, if God did not send the wicked to hell, God would be denying His own justice and His own glory. God created man good and upright. Man chose to sin. Man wasn't forced to sin. He chose to sin. God gave man the clear warning. The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And that's what hell is. Hell is the fullness of death. Man made himself wicked. And the punishment is God's wrath. If God does not pour out his sin or his wrath upon the sinner, he is not a just God. And neither is he a holy God. And you see, God cannot deny who he is as the God of justice and the God of holiness. The reason God sends the wicked to hell for eternity is because that's what God's justice demands. This is sin against God we're talking about. The infinite God who is of infinite majesty. This sin is an infinite transgression. And God is honored. His justice is honored to all eternity by the punishment of eternal hell that God inflicts upon the wicked. And now, again, beloved, let me point this out. This is what we deserve for our sins. This is the punishment we stand exposed to if left to ourselves. Every single one of our sins must be punished. God's justice demands it. Our original sin in Adam must be punished. God's justice demands it. And the punishment required is extreme. That is everlasting punishment of body and soul in hell. God's justice demands it. And this is to the praise of God's name. Anything less than perfect justice is a blemish on God. Yes, God is also merciful, but He is also just. And God's mercy will not displace His justice. They go together. This is the seriousness of our sins, beloved. This is our misery. This is our hopelessness in and of ourselves. This is where you are when you belong to yourself and you find your identity in yourself. And so now we ask the question, is there any hope? What is our hope? Well, the hope is not in ourselves, beloved. Not in ourselves. Our hope is in the name Jesus Christ. And our hope and our confidence is in the fact that we, by faith, belong to Jesus. This is where you see the beauty of Jesus, beloved. This is why we took this exploration into hell because now we get to see who Jesus is more clearly and what he has done. Jesus is God himself come in our flesh who took that curse that was upon us and he took that upon himself. And he is the one, God in the flesh, fully man, who suffered the wrath of God in our place, as our substitute. And he is the one who bore all the agonies of hell for us on the cross. He was banished from the smile of God. He was lashed with all the blows of God's holy wrath, which should have been blows directed against us. And his blood, his blood, which is of infinite value because it's the blood of God, Come in the flesh. The blessed blood of God in the flesh. His blood which is of infinite value. Was able to make a full payment. A full covering for all our sins. He is the one who on the cross. Descended into the deep pit of hell. While he was yet living. Right? Those three hours on the cross. In his body and soul. He passed through the darkness of death. He passed all the way through the darkness and he emerged on the other side alive and victorious. Having paid the wages of sin, his soul could not be left in hell any longer or his body allowed to see corruption. He fully atoned for all the sins. God's justice was satisfied. No more punishment ought to be inflicted upon him. So his soul went to heaven, and his body gave up the ghost, and looked ahead to Resurrection Sunday. And because Jesus endured the shame of hell, suffering all its inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, shame, and horror under the wrath of God, he is also the one who has delivered all who find their refuge in him. This is our hope. This is our comfort. We belong to Him. He is the one who satisfied God's justice, and He is the one through whom God shows us mercy. On the cross, you see His justice and His mercy on perfect display. That's our hope. That's the hope of the believer who looks to Jesus as His Lord and Savior. That's the comfort. You and I have, Christian. To any here this morning who are yet in your sins, I give you the serious call of the gospel. Repent and turn from your sin and believe in the name of Jesus. Flee from the wrath to come. All men must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Repent of your sins. Seek your hope and salvation only in Jesus Christ. He alone has the keys of death and hell. And he is the one who has conquered the grave. Seek your hope and salvation only in Jesus or perish in the everlasting fires of hell. Do not be numb to the reality of hell. Except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. That's the reality for all who die outside of Jesus Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord. Turn to the Lord in true faith. Forsake your sin and you shall be saved. Because our God, the God of Jesus Christ, is the God of mercy and the God of overflowing grace. And He will show you mercy. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee this morning for the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, we take that name for granted too often. We lose sight of the reality of hell. But it is good for us, Lord, to be in thy house, to hear the words of Jesus, and to receive this instruction, that we might cling to him more tightly, see him for as precious as he is, and we might be driven once again to know that our comfort is alone, that we have him. Lord, having him, may we live to thy name's praise and glory in holiness looking ahead all the time to the joy that is in store for us in heaven experiencing thy favor and a foretaste of that joy already now walking with thee on this earth bless this preaching to our hearts and to our lives in jesus name we pray amen